This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this episode is brought to you by the patrons, Sean, Capro, June, Miley, JP, and Chopra. You are my personal lords and saviors. Thank you so much. I truly could not do the show without you. And dear listeners, if you get to the end of this episode and think, I would pay a dollar for that, or I would have paid $3 for that, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and sign up. Every little bit truly helps, and it gets me through, you know, a lot of boring, adulting, expensive things. I just had the foundation of my house repaired and it was approximately a billion dollars. And I have six cats and trying to keep those monsters fed is, you know, a full-time job. So your support doesn't just go to the longevity of this show. It also goes to just basic life things. Otherwise, I would have to start an OnlyFans where I eat dog shit like that scene from Pink Flamingos where Divine just picks up a turd off the road and puts it in her mouth. It would be like that scene over and over and over and over and over again. Do you want that for me? I don't want that for me. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and sign up for just $1 a month. Also, if you haven't already, please go subscribe to my newsletter. I try to write an article every single week. The article that I'm writing this week is called The Satanic Dichotomy of Indulgence versus Self-Mastery, where I explore kind of the tension between the uh, Satanism of Anton LaVey and the philosophy of Aleister Crowley versus a more restrained and stoic form of Satanism and how those things can be like brought together and united and how what appears on the surface to be kind of a, a paradox, an unresolvable paradox, don't actually need to be at odds with each other and how we live our religious lives. So if that's interesting to you, then please sign up and you will get me in your inbox every single week like a cockroach that just will never fucking die. All right, Helen Lewis, welcome to the show. That was a hell of a handbrake turn in the tonal uh, <laughs> register of that. And first of all, I was like, oh, the little cats. You have to pay money so that the little cats don't die. And yes, I just... do. Would you like to see one here? I'd like to see one. And I... <laughs> I... It's, he's a very fat okay. one. This is Eli. Hello, Eli. Eli is very, <laughs> a very handsome cat. Although slightly, the zoom seems to be kind of washing him out slightly. So he looked like he was radiating a kind of heavenly light. <laughs> he does not glow of his own accord. Right, okay. He, he, isn't, <laughs> okay. he isn't irradiated, yes. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm a staff writer from The Atlantic. I wrote a book about feminism called Difficult Women. And most recently, I made a series for the BBC called The New Gurus, which looked at a variety of spheres from wellness to productivity to crypto. And what united them all really was that they weren't just something, you know, they weren't just a sort of, you know, a sector, but they were kind of, they had a philosophy behind them. That's really what we were looking at. And the fact, you know, crypto has a very specific set of beliefs behind it. Wellness has a particular set of beliefs behind it. And so we were uniting them all through this prism that to some extent they're new religious movements. And I guess that's what triggered your interest. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about your series, The New Gurus. It is excellent. It's a fantastic piece of, you know, audio. It's wonderful. And I kind of feel like I am the target audience <laughs> for Good. for the new gurus because I am the kind of guy who 
through my life has been very, very susceptible to online gurus. I've just been that kind of person who has always been drawn to, I don't know, figures who can tell me what to do or figures who can kind of offer me some guidance in life. And it's been a kind of a lifelong journey of figuring out why that is. Why do I have this thing inside of me that is really drawn towards guru figures? So that's really interesting to me because most people who are in your position, I would say, aren't, wouldn't want to say that right they would they would reject that characterization they would find that that was um you know like as if i was saying something offensive about them right the idea that you're because they would they would hear it as me saying you're gullible which is not what i'm saying at all right but that's how very few and and it's key to some of the gurus that we looked at is that they present their audience as independent thinkers people who are you know not sheeple they're not trapped in the matrix whatever it might be they are they are, you know, kind of incredibly intelligent people who weigh the evidence, which, you know, is obviously in many cases is true, but they are also kind of spiritual seekers at the same time. And also I don't, this is a very confession about my, my social circle, because my social circle is journalists. Journalists really pride themselves on basically hating everybody and disrespecting everybody and not having any gurus. <laughs> and this is not, you know, this is not always true. We don't always live up to those principles, but the kind of, my idea about the role of the journalist is the it is the boy in the emperor's new clothes, right? Everyone else is going, what a lovely coat. And you're going, I could see his dick. And that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's what, that's the kind of self-perception that most of pe most people that I know have, right? That they would, they would hate that characterization themselves. So I'm interested that you self-describe like that. That's really fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, I am very much not in those circles, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, that's interesting because I think a general response to your to the past two documentaries you've done, actually, the new gurus and then the previous previous one you did about um, the Church of Social Justice, the Church yeah, of which Social was Justice. About whether or not sort of particularly left-wing social movements, I looked a little bit at the right and at QAnon, but I, I mean, essentially what people would call quote unquote wokery, did it have a kind of religion was it a religious replacement for some people or, or mm. did they see it and talk about it in religious quasi-religious terms and um, a very contentious subject because again that is thrown as an insult at people as if we're saying that they're kind of fundamentalists whereas what I was trying to say is that most of us have a search for meaning in our lives and for some people that comes from a traditional religious faith from some people that comes from a political ideology you know and it all started off with someone asking me whether or not I was raised Catholic whether or not feminism had raised, had replaced Catholicism in my life which kind of gets you know I, I thought was not a ridiculous thing to ask it was really interesting to me you know do you want to become part of a congregation whatever that where you're all there for the same purpose that is talked about in you know, not just materialist terms, but in slightly spiritual terms. That was that was an interesting challenge to me, one that I wanted to think about more. Yeah, and I think a lot of the response to that documentary, the social justice one, especially on places like Reddit, was, how dare she? You know, <laughs> this is so banal, comparing, comparing social justice to religion. And there is this sense of offense because the assumption is if you're calling something a religion, then that must mean it is bad or wrong or people are wrong to do it. And I didn't have that that reaction at all because I guess I have a very expansive view of religion as someone who's a minister of the Satanic Temple. Social justice is literally my religion <laughs> or it's it's literally a, an integral part of it. And so to me, the, when when the question is asked is social justice of religion for me the answer is obviously yes of course 
Of course it is. Yeah, and, and that fine. was interesting that lots of religious people, so religious people by and large, whether they were align themselves with social justice or not, didn't find the documentary offensive because they broadly have a positive view of religion. I yeah. think for a certain type of cadre of people, and I would say Reddit is a very interesting example of this, I would say Reddit is full of people who are ex-new atheists or still current new atheists, right? There is a lot of the subreddits come from that intellectual skeptic energy of the 2000s. So to them being compared to religious people is the same as saying that you're thoughtless or superstitious. But yeah, you know, talking to people in that documentary, I talked to a non-binary minister in the United Reformed Church, um, you know, and they were really interesting about the fact that you know, the, the same things that kind of got them to questioning their, their gender and their sexuality were also the same kind of ideas about a search for meaning in the world that had got them to, you know, having grown up in a very traditional religion, now become a part of a religion that was much more socially progressive. And they, you know, they, 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 they didn't want to separate out those two identities. Going back to gurus for a moment, what makes a guru? What qualifies as a guru in your mind? Well, for me, it was really about charismatic individuals who were offering not exactly maybe salvation, but, you know, offering a sort of path for people. Um, and I defer on this one to some of your previous guests, actually, the guys from Chris and Matt from Decoding the Gurus, who have come right. up with a very useful taxonomy of uh, and all these things they can rank on, which I found out about after starting the series. And it was really useful because there are a couple of things they identify that I definitely saw in the people that we touched on in the series. So, you know, uh, conspiracy mongering is one of them. You know, the idea that there is a sort of system that is against them and that's why they're not on you know, NPR or in the New York Times or on the BBC, they're in these alternative ecosystems. And there's often a kind of slightly sort of sinister explanation for that. That I definitely saw that. Some, you know, um, unorthodox ways of making money, unregulated ways of making money, you know, whether or not it's grifting per se in the sense of being conscious, but certainly, you know, the fact that wellness supplements and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies underpin a lot of this space as because they're unregulated. That really came across really strongly. Uh, and, you know, um, not all of them were galaxy brained, which is interesting to me. Some of them definitely the more, more intellectual gurus would have opinions on absolutely everything. But, you know, people on in the wellness sphere maybe do more stay in their lane. So it's, you know, it's it's interesting to like look at what the common factors are. And obviously there are some people who kind of have some of them, but not all of them. Um, but, yeah, you do see patterns coming up. And the other one I find particularly really interesting, I don't know if this is something that you've seen, is the fact that some people pinged from one extreme thing to another. Yes. And, and, and ideologies that would often just, you know, have nothing. Like the guy in episode six, he wanted to be a Greek Orthodox monk and then became a pickup artist. <laughs> and so celibate or having much more sex with many more people than most of us would do in a lifetime. And But, but uh, what the common thread of them being like, you would be a sort of priest figure that people would listen to and you would be special in some way. Yeah, so I think the best example of that, or or one of the best examples of that, is James Lindsay. It was strayed from the path of atheist righteousness, right? But I, the reason I wanted to interview him is that I was interested in, I like I understand from his psychological perspective that getting dunked on on the internet is a horrible and probably quite radicalizing experience. But I just, it, the bit that got to me having, I had interviewed him around the time of the so-called squared hoax, um, the so-called grievance studies hoax, where they submit, he and Helen and Peter Bogosian submitted all these fake papers to academic journals that was intended to prove that the, you know, academic work had fallen to the, the social justice agenda. And, you know, I remember thinking, God, he's a bit intense, but I did not think that a couple of years later he would be arguing with the Auschwitz Museum. Yeah, and same. that's why I wanted to interview him because... I was like, well, if it can happen to him, it could happen to me. It could happen to lots of people I know who are quite argumentative online. And what is it that that what caused that trajectory? What role does canceling play 
in this because so I have had my own personal run-ins with trashing, with being trashed online and on Twitter. And I am just like the most non-controversial person. I would rather chew off my own arm than have an argument with someone. And so for me, it was like this this deeply awful radicalizing experience. And I had to fight really hard not to become a a oh, how, how do I even want to say it? A Brett Weinstein kind of person, an Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein kind of figure. If listeners don't know who that is, count your blessings. You're not on the internet. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> You've once always won this test. But I know what you mean. And then that was what I, I focused on in episode five, the intellectual dark web. Hmm. Because you know, for all that, I think lots of their claims about the kind of the idea that there is a kind of, you know, totalitarian system of control and the press and the elites are all against you, because actually there's an incredibly thriving contrarian ecosphere and a right wing ecosphere, too. But there is definitely a left liberal ecosystem in the particularly in the legacy press, particularly in America, which is so polarized, you know, the, the press is either very firmly left or right. There's not a great deal in the middle that, you know, if you do run smack bang into the into that it can suddenly feel like polite society has kind of excluded you and i think that has i think it's been i think it's been hugely counterproductive and you know i would say that as somebody who's who's run into it and had my, my own troubles with it but what it did i think was first of all it 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 made a lot of people susceptible to the message that there was a real chill and free speech going on, which then made them much more likely to listen to lots of other things that the idw was saying maybe as you mentioned brett weinstein kind of covid contrarianism vaccine skepticism all that kind of stuff because they went well it's very true i do feel like there's things i can't say and so maybe they have got a point and that led them down that that path and the other thing it did that i think really backfired is it created a kind of kinship among the cancelled yes. you know they had all been through this incredibly traumatic experience together and it's interesting like i you know this comes up a lot when i talk to people and people might go why is everyone always going on about being cancelled and it's because because for everybody who's been through it it, it is a really pro- like bizarre and profound experience it's harrowing yeah and and they yeah and and it's almost one that you can't really explain to other people who haven't been through it. So I'm sure to normal people on the outside, it feels like everyone's incredibly self indulgent. But it is like having all survived the same very small localized war. And if you were like the five your five buddy veterans all from the war, that you know, and this was the time you got together and, and talked about this these experiences that no one else understood. That's a profoundly bonding experience. And so I think it had two different effects that were both for the left actually in the long term really backfired on them. Yeah. And, you know, there are just times when, especially more as the intellectual dark web, quote unquote, kind of aged, I started to get this this creepy feeling of like, oh, if the Unabomber was canceled on Twitter, these guys would have him on to interview him. <laughs> oh, no, they absolutely, they would. You know? Well, <laughs> maybe not post the bombing, but definitely during the period when he's in the weird cabin sending absolutely. Like, strange yeah. letters. Visionary. Like, well, vi- yeah. they, would, they would be like, oh, this guy, is a, this guy is a visionary, brilliant, you know, ecological thinker. We need to have him on the show and everyone hates him. And that, that was the experience that, that I had of the the for lack of a better term cancellation just giving giving you tunnel vision and it because it's like the pain of it is so fierce and so hard to describe and suddenly you're you're in this small club of weird compatriots but the problem is that some of those compatriots aren't great <laughs> 
Yeah, and but, but you know, I keep thinking about the fact that the, the word ostracism comes from the ancient Greek, right? Ostraka, which was the idea that everybody could write your they'd write your name on a on a tablet, on a clay tablet, and then that was it. You got cast out of the city, and it was designed to be the actually in some respects a worse punishment than death because you could die quite honourably. But this was the idea that you would have to live with your shame forever, and you know, and, and just profoundly carry that weight around with you. It was designed to be deliberately horrible and so I think we've kind of had to you know the fact the bit that always annoyed me about it was the fact that people would inflict this terrible punishment but insist that either it was sort of righteous or that actually it wasn't a punishment at all and I think that was a a failure to confront people's own feelings of well you know for people who had felt powerless in their lives this was suddenly a huge power to be able to wield and I think lots of them really enjoyed that and maybe didn't use that responsibly but you're right that you know you can't tell the story of the intellectual dark web without telling the story of Twitter and pylons and you know the and also the way that Twitter interacted with journalism so it began to feel that there was a one way of thinking that you know was the right way on Twitter and on and and that was reflected in liberal publications and you know for all that it's you might say it's some very wealthy and decent people moaning about their lives it did have really profound repercussions particularly through American cultural life and still does I think you know you know I, I particularly on the on the on COVID re- regulations right the fact that actually so many of those people who had been cancelled for other reasons all glommed onto covid contrarianism and anti-masking mandates anti-vaccination you know that is a that is a serious public health issue that has been directly affected by a kind of ideological climate so you're a journalist you work at the atlantic you've worked for the bbc you've worked for you know all kinds of big prestigious outlets are they right are they right that you know big journalism is uh is uh gatekeeping and not allowing them to say what what they want is is that correct well Fundamentally, yes, because I have an editor, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And, and editors are good. We need gatekeepers. <laughs> That's a good yes, thing. And if, you, if you've read anyone's Substack that goes on for 15,000 words and you don't understand at the end what their point was, you will acknowledge that editors are the unsung heroes of journalism. But you're yes. right. I think, I do think, I do accept the criticism that actually, and that, you know, that there can be a kind of snootiness about people who don't think the right way. That's what people are picking up, a kind of sense of righteousness and dismissiveness that, that people are very sensitive to and is therefore very a bad idea. And 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 Twitter really made that worse because you could see journalists like, ha ha ha, and sort of like, <laughs> look at the little people, don't they? you know, and having, yucking it up with each other. Like it made it very obvious that there was a sort of creative class of people who looked like they were having a great life. Actually, they were probably living in crappy Brooklyn apartments you know and and wondering if they'd still have a job in 12 months time but it looked like they were living this great gilded life and that made people very jealous very unhappy very excluded very diminished and so there is that but you know that's the great question of journalism like it's the great question of science right what's a visionary idea and what's a crackpot theory well the only way in science you find that out is by doing experiments um and things can sound absolutely insane until you prove them you know like the higgs boson but you know that's fine get down cern and fire up the particle accelerator and we'll find out if it's true or not and the same thing is the problem is true in journalism that the best stories are the ones that are almost unbelievable but you've got the facts to support them and and we also we're all so conditioned that we all love narratives far more than facts we all love stories far more than we can remember individual facts so you know journalists have to be very careful about that incredibly seductive power of these these uh, these stories that were primed in our heads to already you know already slot new information into mm, could you give an example of one of those kinds of stories well like so example all the way through me too you know me too is usually a construct um 
contest of narratives, which is like, oh, look at this poor guy who's had his life ruined by accusations versus look at this guy who's been held bang to rights finally after too many years of getting away with with murder. And you can, you know, individual stories are one of the two. Sometimes they're very murky and they fall midway between them. But realistically, most people want to be told, like, is he a Rogan or not? Right. You know, and they want it to be one of those two stories, you know, falsely accused or righteously brought down. And and you get enough facts until you slot them into one or the other. And that's what I mean. You're constantly fighting as a journalist to, you know, the most interesting things to write about are the things that are on the knife edge balance between the two. Um, mm. I'm not saying this is of equal import, but like I've been writing about Prince Harry's memoir and Prince Harry is both at the same time very privileged, slightly narcissistic, self-involved, and also has some genuine and sometimes over-eggs his arguments, but at the same time has some incredibly compelling arguments about the press and the cosy relationship they have with the British royal family and the outrages of the tabloid press during the 90s and the thousands when they were invading people's privacy that are correct fundamentally. And But people, people want it to be like savage Prince Harry takes down the monarchy or you know, narcissist Prince Harry moans from his gilded California pad, right? And it's like, <laughs> kind of a bit of both, like a little from column A, a little from column B. That's the, that's the that's the constant line that you're walking in, I think, good journalism about difficult subjects. Listening to you talk about journalism and how what some people online and intellectual dark web types. I just realized that we haven't defined intellectual dark web. We'll get there. Neither have they. So it's neither have <laughs> so, they. So we are in. <laughs> we are I can on give brand. The little which is that yes. um, it was came up with by Eric Weinstein, right? Who was a venture capitalist, and mm -hmm. it was then kind of uh, immortalized in a 2018 New York Times feature by Barry Weiss, who's now an independent um, Substacker. And the idea was that they were all heterodox. You know, they had all had to either walk out of the academy or publishing or the mainstream in some way because they'd got views, whether that was on Western civilization, gender, race, uh, you know, climate change, you know, that they were. And the, the paradigm that they all sort of see themselves as is, you know, Galileo. Galileo saying to the church, I'm sorry, but the earth goes around the sun. And it's really interesting. I've been writing this book on genius. So I've been reading all the biographies of Galileo and Galileo, Interesting enough, for all that he was, you know, um, tortured by the Inquisition, died in his own bed yep. because he actually he was incredibly good at not annoying the Inquisition <laughs> and and stayed alive when like lots of people during that time got burned at the stake. So he was a very careful, skilled politician about what, what he knew, which I don't think is really part of the story. And often, just as often, people who come up with a crazy theory that the establishment laughs at quite often those people are insane <laughs> like they, you're not always Galileo it turns out so but anyway this was this was their self-image um so you know sometimes you're the guy who thinks that you know aliens are communicating through you and you have to wear tinfoil on your head um and sometimes you've come up with the heliocentric universe <laughs> go either way <laughs> and and you know so a lot of people in the intellectual dark web especially the Weinstein brothers come to mind really cast themselves as like Galileo figures standing up against the I forget the the acronym they had for it the grid or whatever the, the hell the disc I the believe di the yes. distributed information suppression complex I don't know why I know this anymore this is too much decoding the gurus I've been I've been poisoned <laughs> you are yeah. way too deep into the internet it kind of reminds me of a comment that the Chapo boys on Chapo Trap House said once and this was years ago back when I still listened to them but they they said something about QAnon how the intuition that drives a lot of conspiracy theories is correct. One of those intuitions being 
that the ultra rich have kind of a, a different relationship to other human beings than we do, right? That the ultra rich, the ultra powerful kind of have a different morality and a different way of engaging the world. And it's kind of creepy to us. It's, it, it makes us uncomfortable the way, you know, having billions or having incredible political power, the way that kind of alters the relationship that these people have to the world around them. And, and people sense that, and it's uncomfortable. They have a different kind of moral framework. But they take that intuition and then blow it out of proportion, and suddenly these people are you know, pedophiles and they're harvesting adrenochrome and all of that stuff. But it's driven by an intuition that's kind of correct, but it 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 is taken in a really bad and irrational and dangerous direction. And I, I kind of feel the same way about the intellectual dark web and, and people who are in that orbit where they get that feeling that a lot of journalists and a lot of the establishment it's can be a bit snooty and that's annoying but then they take that intuition they take that feeling and it turns into this gigantic conspiracy and next thing you know they are denying the efficacy of covid vaccines and so it's like it, yeah. it's taking that that grain in the pearl or or that grain in the oyster that grain of truth that intuition and then it just builds on layer upon layer upon layer of resentment and conspiracy thinking and so on and so forth and then the next thing you know they they are you know talking about a a journalistic conspiracy to suppress the truth about vaccines yeah and i mean the sad truth about conspiracies is that it implies a degree of organization and you know frankly people <laughs> doing what they're told so it is almost impossible to achieve with outside a kind of totalitarian society but i entirely agree with you one of the weirdest things about covering politics which I did for 10 years at the New Statesman and even in Britain which let's be honest is not a particularly you know um corrupt or ex or excitingly corrupt country it's kind of boringly I mean their their parliamentary meetings are so much more exciting than congress though like they I would watch that they fucking yell at each other they they're like laughing yeah, at Prime each Minister's other questions is is gets quite tasty um on occasion <laughs> um select committee meetings less so which are like the kind of like senate committees but you know but but the way that power kind of deforms your experience of the world you can see very much with not just with politicians but with people who are on their way up right mm. and i've been um in florida quite a bit over the last couple of months one of the things that i've seen is ron DeSantis up close and it's been really interesting even between him winning re-election and his inauguration the smell of power and the people wanting to be near him because they think hang on a minute this guy's got a chance of being president and like the way that the, and the money that that then attracts, you know, the people who want to get on the train because they think the train's going to go all the way to the final station. You know, it is fundamentally an incredibly bizarre and distorting way to live. And I'm sure, you know, I, you know, it exaggerates all your worst tendencies, I think, in, this, in the same way that celebrity does. You know, I'm sure that Elon Musk has become more and more unusual as fewer and fewer people have said no to him. And more and more people have said, oh, my God, you're so amazing. And every interaction he has is with somebody who wants something out of him. 
um, you know, that's that is a very fundamentally poisonous way to live. And I think people have kind of identified that 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 distorting power. But I also feel that about um, Will, who we talked to in episode two, the wellness episode, who is the one who practices urine therapy. Yes. I don't know if you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've I, you I've that? listened. I've listened to the whole thing twice. Yes. OK, well, you'll know lovely Will. But I, I was really interested because he's an anti-vaxxer, which he came through the wellness route to kind of get there. But his foundational experiences are, you know, feeling that um food is kind of full of rubbish in the US I would say he has a good point on that right correct like food regulation in the US is not great there are lots of things on sale we like what is is this food is this actually technically food <laughs> um yeah, I mean I love it it tastes great but objectively it, it, its relationship to nutrition is tenuous at best and also the fact that he was gay bashed essentially and then offered pills instead of real therapy you know like and that is an experience of lots of people going through the healthcare system in america right it's like Mm. here's the medicine to fix you when actually what really you need is something much more holistic and so that was appealing to me too because i felt like he had taken two he had identified two problems that i think is fundamentally true the american pharma system is constructed for profit rather than for the benefit of its users and that you know, American consumer regulation is allowing lots of stuff to be put in your body that's probably not good for you. And the output of that was vaccine scepticism. And I hope that would help a lot of people who don't under who are, you know, who still think in a very mainstream trust kind of way to understand actually if you'd had those inputs, maybe you'd end up with that output too. Um, that and and I and I think it's really helpful to understand that. And it's also kind of very funny to me to come to the conclusion that, you know, what are the things you could do to increase uptake of vaccines you know just fundamentally change americans relationship with their healthcare system well that's a, so that's a nice easy answer i've come up with that for that one you'll be pleased to know <laughs> no i i think that's right though the the kind of imperative for empathy and what i saw you do in this documentary was kind of try to empathize even with people that you really 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 disagreed with like will blunderfield or you know, even more challenging the pickup artist guys. And and empathy doesn't necessarily mean a condoning of their actions, but it's just like getting into their headspace. Sometimes we walk away from empathy with a darker image of who they are. Sometimes empathy does not lead us to, you know, a, a, a moral, you know, an acceptance of their behavior. Sometimes it's the opposite. But you do try to explore what drives people and and what are the motivations and like the emotional motivations behind it and i i wish more people did that especially in the incredibly polarized environment in the united states i think it's tough though isn't it because you have to walk the line and you're talking you you, what you said earlier i think is really true about not just interviewing people who are bats i can see another one of your cats Uh, that's very exciting that's lilith Hello, Lilith. Um, have they all got biblical names? Um, not all of them. Two of them have biblical names, and then the rest don't. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, we'll, go, we'll, we'll, re- we'll revisit this later. But, uh, what was I <laughs> oh, yeah, about empathy. Yes. So there is obviously a kind of clout chasing or click chasing where you just go and interview people who are very controversial. And, you know, I was very critical of Lex Friedman interviewing Kanye West, right, when he was yeah. several steps down the road of having already said extraordinarily 
conspiratorial and anti-Semitic things because I was like, what, where, you know, what makes you think that he's on hour three, he's going to kind of break down and give you some explanation for this. It's going to make this all make sense. He's obviously in the middle of a bipolar episode um, and doesn't have that kind of insight into his own behavior. So, you know, really what, what's the point of this other than lots of people are going to watch your YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, But, but the opposite side of that is doing it for the BBC was really good from that reason. So the BBC has a duty, it's called due impartiality. So the fact is you do have to represent all sides of the argument, but you are allowed to give different weight to them depending on how good they are. Mm. So we went through, so, you know, we, it means that you can speak to someone who is anti-vax, but you do then have to give the facts about, you know, and I talked about the fact that before we had a measles vaccine, whatever it is, several million people a year were dying of measles. And that is the, that is just, just, you know, we have that some things are now proved and true. And the, the BBC made this ruling on climate change a couple of years ago, right? It was no longer a debate anthropogenic climate change was was obvious and was happening and the weight of scientific consensus was now behind it so you're right like that and that's one of the reasons that i every time i talk to americans and I, which i do a lot because i work for american magazines i kind of sing the praises of the bbc because it means you have to have those difficult conversations and the other thing you have to do is put if you're doing an interview with someone you cannot do a softball interview with them you mm. have to put the challenge questions to them that's how, that's how they refer to them the challenge questions so i have to say to james lindsay people who I say to them, you are arguing on the internet with the Auschwitz Memorial. Some people will say that's crazy behavior. It obviously, you don't think it's crazy or you wouldn't be doing it. What's your reasoning for it, right? But you can't just tiptoe around the difficult subjects. You have to confront them, but you have to find a way of, of asking people about them that gives them the chance to respond. And they maybe they have some very good explanation. And in James's case, you know, his explanation was that he tried to be nice on Twitter and conciliatory and have these discussions with people. And it had sort of driven him crazy. So he decided that actually people needed to see that someone could really kind of wade in and <laughs> smack them with a the cricket bat. And and it, like, it was a very conscious choice to be that much more combative Twitter persona. And I was, int I was, I thought, I don't agree with you, but like, I, I'm, I, and now at least I understand why you're doing what you're doing. What, what you think you're doing right so i i did screenwriting for a bit and one of the things they always say is no villain thinks they're a villain they always think they're a hero in another story and so james's self-perception is somebody who sees these incredibly terrible things happening in the world and is a righteous warrior against them um and you see that pe people lots of people have that self-perception and if if you genuinely think thought the things that were happening in the world that he thinks are happening you know the sort of global takeover by the world economic forum then you would, you know, you would feel the duty to be a whistleblower about them too. I'm guessing, right? So you have to follow the steps back in the logic to work out how we got to the bit, the only bit that you see, the tip of the iceberg that you see that seems impossible to understand. Yeah, it sounds like what you're advocating for is like a complex empathy where it it, it isn't just a simple empathy. It's an empathy that requires hard questions and not necessarily condoning everything that you come across and not just sitting there being like, oh, I understand. Yes, that makes sense. But but a much more complex form of empathy that ultimately helps us understand where people are coming from. And also acknowledging that you're coming from you're not coming from this place of total objectivity, you know, the view from nowhere. You're coming from your your own mm. cultural, historical, national background, right? And, you know, one of the conversations I had with Peter McCormack in the episode about Bitcoin was he was like, you only see the negative stuff. You know, that's what journalists do. They only see the negative stuff about cryptocurrency. Well, let's revisit this in 10 years time when it's come to its full potential. And, you know, there are, you know, the people who thought the first Beatles record was crap and that the internet would never take off um, for whatever reasons it was, that you have to be very honest about the fact that you're giving your best possible assessment but you're not claiming 
you know, you're not sitting in this ultimate position of authority and judgment on people. Okay, so speaking of the challenge questions, Jordan Peterson. Yes, <laughs> you, I'm, I'm familiar with his work. You are you yeah. are familiar with his work. Speaking of which, I made a terrible life choice and recently purchased the ABC. <gasps> you got it. <laughs> I got, you got it. the ABC of mad poems about kids. Yes. Okay. Wow. I'm just going to I'm just going to read one real fast. So so people can, can you read me the one where the last line is where the hell was Christian? Yes, God? that was the one my, that I that's my that favorite was, one. <laughs> that's my favorite one too okay here we go this is for f frederick was sadly flawed after he was madly pawed by his neighbor deeply awed where the hell was christian god i just i ever think about honestly it took me i mean i would say because i you know i think my sort of bullshit radar is relatively well developed at this point the things that sound too good to be true or too perfect or too weird i always always assume that they're not true i was like that's obviously not real though is it no that's not jordan peterson hasn't written a book of children's rhymes the majority of which appear to be about child sexual abuse that's that would be that would be incredibly tasteless and weird and then i was like oh my god it's on amazon <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is on Amazon, and it was an impulse buy. I couldn't stop myself. It was a bad financial choice. I regret that decision. But now I get to horrify my guests with with <laughs> dramatic readings of the ABC of Childhood Tragedy Volume One. The, it's the Volume One part that I find it most disturbing. Threatens more volumes to come. <laughs> it's, How many more there could be? It's a I very did, um... it's very sinister. <laughs> I did a Christmas quiz for the podcast Blocked and Reported and one of them was like trying to guess which one the fake one was out of and I had to write my own <laughs> Jordan Peterson childhood rhyme, which I can't remember was. I was sort of like Sarah sucked on lollipops. By 18, she was sucking cops. Oh, <laughs> if only her loving dad hadn't made her so damn sad or something like that. I was like, yeah, that kind of fits with the weird theme of it all. But they unfortunately, they were very good and they clocked that that wasn't the real one. I don't know how. Maybe because the meter was too good. That's what I tell myself. It was simply too good as poetry. I'm fascinated by Jordan Peterson to the chagrin of most people in my life, uh, including my audience. And you did a notorious interview with him that has like 60 million views on mm -hmm. YouTube. And it's just for an hour and a half. I listened to the whole thing when I was at work the other day. And he was just like needlessly irascible, just pointlessly combative and irascible. And so as someone who has spent you know, spent, you know, that that quality time with him for an hour and a half. What do you what is the appeal in your mind of figures like Jordan Peterson? Because he is famous for a reason. And I mm. think and, and all of these gurus are famous for a reason. That's Velma behind me, by the way. Another okay. cat. So the Scooby-Doo theme, the God theme. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Um, one of the things that I've continually find myself telling my fellow lefties is that we ignore the fame of these people to our peril, right? We need to understand why people like Jordan Peterson are so powerful, are so famous. What, is, what, what need are they filling? And if we ignore that, we do so at our peril because they're famous for a reason. People say Jordan Peterson has changed their lives for a reason. So what do you think that reason is? I think there are a couple of different things. I think one, he is just um, an incredibly compelling speaker. I know I think you, his rise coincides with YouTube as a kind of massive vehicle. And there was just 
hundreds and hundreds of hours of his lectures on YouTube. So if you got into him and you found him interesting, you could go and really like have an incredibly deep relationship with him and his content. These were all the lectures about things like Jungian symbolism and the Lion King, and also about, you know, kind of the Bible and his, the, the work he was doing in Maps of Meaning, essentially, was about kind of meta stories in human culture. And, you know, I am a bit, I, I, I think I feel a bit about it like I feel about sort of Yuval Harari or someone like that. It mm. feels a bit like pre-chewed versions of, you know, Joseph Campbell's The Theory with a Thousand Faces or whatever it might be, or Jung or Freud themselves. And like, that's fine. Everybody's going to have an entry point to that. And actually, you know, but it felt very sciencey or thinky, right? While actually being very eloquently delivered and quite easy to, to digest. So I think there was that point about it. The other thing I would say is if you consume him only through the 12 Rules for Life book, which sold 2 million copies, the first volume of that, it's not you know and now the glorious white race arises and we smite the unbeliever right it's all very middle of the road really there's some i think some very dodgy evolutionary psychology in there and some socially conservative attitudes about gender the book itself is to a kind of somebody who's not massively steeped in cultural arguments or intellectual debates about race and gender or whatever it might be you know it's full of stuff like don't interrupt kids when they're skateboarding always pet a cat when you see one in the street you know um tidy your room you know all this sort of stuff that's really kind of and the overall message is one that's about responsibility and actually that's the bit of him that i like and i sort of approve i've been reading up a lot about andrew tate the uh hugely misogynistic influencer and what he's preaching basically is a kind of what i think of as the grand theft auto lifestyle right it's like mm-hmm. hose and cars and like i'm yeah, i'm gonna sit around in my living room with my sword collection it's a sort of 13 year old's <laughs> idea of what it would be like to be a man like how cool it would be to be a man and so Jordan Peterson was kind of countercultural in that sense, right? In which he was like, have you thought about settling down with your childhood sweetheart and staying married forever? Um, and, you know, having a job and a stable responsibility and, and, and washing yourself and all that sort of stuff. So I think that bit appealed to a lot of, of people. That's the good side of him. But I think the reason that he was so popular was, again, he was unbalanced on that fine edge where mm. half the people were like, why is everyone being so mean to this guy who's only trying to get young men to take responsibility for their lives? And the other half of the people who maybe consume more of his online content saw his tweets or some of the contentious interviews um, you know, where he he held forth on subjects like climate change or the whole row about Nellie Bowles's interview with him in the New York Times where he talked about enforced monogamy. Yeah. And he said, you know, I'm using that in its technical social science sense later, whereas other people read it as like every incel gets allocated a wife. And people would have these incredible arguments because they saw essentially two Jordan Petersons. And that's the that's something that I wrote in an Atlantic piece around the most recent book coming out saying, you know, he was just a kind of a scissor and that was the engine behind his popularity was that people were consuming two completely different Jordan Petersons but it's also what slightly I think broke his brain in the nicest possible sense that he couldn't understand why he would go out and I watched him in a show in Long Island and these people were loving him just like lapping him up they would have taken his advice on anything and at the same time he was getting as he saw it this incredibly mean the haters mm. and living in the middle of that level of polarization is is probably just not good for you well, I mean, it's definitely not good for you. I don't think I can't imagine anyone would respond well t- to that. Yeah, I mean, every so often I'll listen to his podcast, and it it really is just like watching someone mentally dissolve slowly in public, and like he will just weep publicly. He 
He he weeps on his podcast. He talks about weird health stuff. But this is what in- annoys me on a moment of personal annoyance. Yes, I'm please. Sorry for being my, my petty grievances here. I felt the frame of that interview very much to his fans was this feminist. Uh, you know, she's turning up because she's an NPC. She just believes everything that she's been told. She doesn't think for herself. And it was like, I was feminine and therefore emotional. And he was male and therefore scientific and rational. Mm. And actually... I think, as I said to him during the interview, like you seem to cry a lot more than I do. It, it was the and opposite. Yeah, it, it was. You certainly yes. dress a lot in a lot more dapper fashion than I do, <laughs> and you know you have all these traits that are kind of quite classically feminine. And now he's very much, as you say, he's interested in diet culture. His daughter has this lion diet where they eat only t- certain types of of meats, so he's essentially got disordered eating now, and he claims it's for health reasons. But I think I'm, you know, I I wonder about that. Uh, whereas I, I'm like a pigeon. I'll eat anything that people have left on the floor. But um, <laughs> you know, so it was just a really interesting that the gender relationship of it was really interesting to me. That I was cast in this particular role as silly young girl. I was like 35 at the time, you know, um, silly young emotional girl, and he is Mr. Big rational teacher. And actually, I think when you look at us side by side and strip away the gendered aspects of that, I'm just not sure that actually held up. But again, it comes back to these simple stories. That was the story that people were expecting to see silly feminists get schooled by somebody who actually knows what biochemistry is and so they that's what they ended up seeing mm. talk about the dis, the gender the sex disparity in the guru sphere it, because this mm. is one of the things that you hit on all the time uh, consistently in your documentary is the vast majority of the gurus are men what is it about men and gurus well i think if you take the analysis that some of it is replacing traditional religion then Almost every, you know, some religions have had priestesses, but generally the authority figures have been, you know, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church is a man, the Pope is a man, the imams are men, you know, and it is male authority structures. I wonder as well whether or not, um, you know, so Matt Brown of, of Decoding the Gurus has a theory about risk taking, which is associated with testosterone, which is, you know, particularly now when you have to be an entrepreneur and you have to set up your own podcast, right? You have to sort of set yourself up. Is that something that young men are much more likely to do? And that's kind of comes down to biology. I think there's some of that. I think there's some socialization involved as well that women are told and, you know, sort of given all this messaging not to kind of just randomly spout bollocks about things they don't know anything about and oh, well put it more like the case that i think um you know you get when you're a woman you get a constant feedback when you're on tv when i do lots of tv and radio of like you don't know what you're talking about you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about you're not you know who wants to listen to this this girl or like then you tip to a certain point and it's like who wants to listen to this old bag what does she know about anything so i think there is a kind of consistent theme throughout that that it, there is a problem with female authority and so it's not coincidental that the one place that you do see female gurus is wellness which is diet and exercise culture because those are not that prestigious and a bit woo woo and a bit you know and and feminine so they kind of get left but even then you know you get the liver king and you get you know these kind of ripped dudes and their alpha workouts um and also i would say a lot of the guru sphere runs on a big engine of anxiety about masculinity and the idea that we have to reclaim some imaginary version of lost traditional masculinity that there once was that now so some of it i definitely see as a reaction to particularly second wave feminism and the idea of equality and pay you know women in the workforce 
um, women is equality in relationships, you know, m- much more equitable divorce laws, uh, m- or, and things like women might be much more likely to get custody of children after a relationship breakup, right? That there is a sense that male authority has been eroded and that men have been feminized, culture has been feminized. Um, and, so, you know, again, to come back to the conspiracy theory point, a lot of that does rest on foundations of truth in the sense that in both the US and the UK, women now make up the majority of undergraduates at universities and actually the majority of taught postgraduates too. It's only research degrees and PhDs that are male dominated. So you have these, you know, more and more educated women who are therefore getting jobs, you know, and often women are, you might, you find this thing where more men are kind of brilliant, but with terrible social skills. And maybe the workplace used to be much more accommodating to those people. And now maybe workplaces would much more prefer to have somebody, you know, more rounded around the place. So I think there is a feeling that it's not as great a deal to be a man now as it was in 1950 or 1850. And mm-hmm. some of some of this is an overt reaction to that. You know, I definitely see that with the the playing with taboos that you get in the IDW where we have to say all these things we're not allowed to say about women. And you see it in the manosphere, right, which is, again, all these things we're not allowed to say about, about women. Um, so a lot of it takes its kind of taboo-busting nature from harking back to very traditional essentialist ideas about gender. Yeah, and... You know, it seems to me that a lot of the guru sphere is aimed specifically at men. And there's all there's just the cultural dynamic, I feel like, where a lot of men are uncomfortable and resentful about successful and competent women. There a lot of young guys just cannot handle the presence of a really competent really intelligent really professional woman and so i i wonder if there's also kind of the audience shaping it as well where you know if a female jordan peterson came along i don't know if she would be able to have the same kind of audience because i think she would just freak a lot of guys out <laughs> honestly right. yeah. and no and i think there's a there is an you know it's very hard to talk about this stuff without either sounding like a massive prick or just like special pleading but there are there was a i felt in the reactions to that interview there was a huge insistence that i was completely stupid not that i was wrong but that i was just you know literally unable to form a sentence and you kind of go i mean you know i without kind of like oh i went to a very good university but i you know like in my academic record would suggest that i'm not stupid um but there was this insistent need to prove that i was and i think you're right i used to play a lot of video games online and there was a particular resistance to the idea that you've been quotes beaten by a girl right it was it was humiliating yeah um and emasculating and i do think you're right that there's some of that i also think there's something about the fact about men's social relationships maybe we know that men on average have fewer close friends than women and i wonder if you get with some guys particularly if they're young they haven't got very good social skills yet they don't feel particularly you know they feel awkward they don't feel particularly good at making friends that gurus become a sort of substitute friend to them maybe you know father figure but also maybe a friendship network that they feel and also because so much of the way that those communities are constructed is about seeing yourself as a kind of a group like particularly you guys against the world yeah that that gives them a sense of belonging and companionship that they you know it's an easier to access that through their smartphone or their computer than it is by doing it in, in real life particularly if the girls their age i'm talking about like teenage boys you know seem to be way ahead in terms of of their of their kind of social relationships Mm. which I think is a real I think is a real phenomenon that boys and girls particularly in between like sort of 15 and 19 you know maybe you know have different kind of levels of sort of social ease in a lot of cases yeah I think that's probably right well in the last few minutes here do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me 
I do. I do. So tell me about, uh, <laughs> give me um, a potted explanation. Because I said to my friend Tracy, I've been asked to go on a podcast by someone who's a minister in the Church of Satan. Satanic she Temple. Said, Satanic Temple, yeah. sorry. Yep. And I get it right away. But her question exactly was, was that the like goat sacrificing Satanists or was it the cool <laughs> atheist trolley Satanists? <laughs> and I said... <laughs> Well, I said, oh, I said, we'll find out. <laughs> I, I'm interested in your personal journey. Did you have, what other beliefs did you have on your journey towards this? Or like what other communities were you part of to get here? So I was a Christian missionary and I went straight ah. from, and I was raised very fundamentalist Christian. My Christian faith started to fall apart in my late 20s. And every inch of that process was excruciating and terrible. But basically what I found was that I am still a deeply religious person, even if I am no longer theistic, even if I am no longer a supernaturalist. That religion, the, the, the ritual, the liturgy, the community, the symbolism, the story means a lot to me, and my life feels impoverished without it. And it was just really, really hard to find a religious space where I could be fully skeptical and non-theistic. And the Satanic Temple came along, and it was love at first sight. So it is non-theistic. However, I, I don't think it's tr it's a troll. No, what I mean is in the sense of like um, the way that I think that um, you're able to point out some of the religious protections in America. Yes. That if they were applied to non-Christian religions, Christians would be like, that's appalling. Why are these people getting special measures? And it's like, well, that's but right. you're asking for special measures because you think your religion is the one that's right. But that's actually not, you know, that's not how the law can be constructed. Yeah. So that's the bit I mean is that yeah, it's very absolutely. good for... I think I saw an interview on Fox News with a guy being like, you know, I want to have after school satanic lessons. And, and that will, you know, if you can have after school evangelical lessons that teach girls to be ashamed of their bodies and that boys that masturbation is a sin, then why can't I teach them about, you know, Satan? Yeah, that was Lucian Greaves, who's the co-founder and he's a regular guest on the show. And, you know, so I'm a I'm a minister of Satan. And so my life and I serve on ordination council, which is, you know, oversees the, the ordination program. So my life is very much internal to the temple and the religious life. And so I don't even really think about or touch the political sphere of the satanic temple. I'm, I'm involved in, in cultivating the community, the body of ministers and all that. And it is very much a, a, a religious thing for me. And so, you know, I see religion and atheism as a false binary. I, I think that religion and atheism 100% um, can go together. And I don't think that I would have been able to move on from theistic belief if I did not have the option of a non-theistic religion. So it it's kind of like a, for me, it's kind of like a harm reduction thing. And it's very self-aware. You know, it's, it's very self-aware that this, this is made up but it gives me a profound sense of meaning and value. And I'm okay with that. And it's okay if other people don't relate to that. So, you know, we have a whole set of tenets. We have seven tenets. We have communities. It just brings me a lot of joy. Um, uh, and and so, you know... I, I think that's wonderful. And that's yeah. what I mean. This is why I mean about, like, people taking that documentary that kind of slightly the, the wrong way. Because you're right. The sense of community and, and meaning that you can get from religion... If you don't find it in religion, you might look for it in other places that are actually worse places to look for it. Um, and so I'm 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 all in favor of people trying to build social structures that give people some of the same joy that they get from church without having to, as you say, subscribe to 
moral codes that were written 3000 years ago and are no longer kind of fit for purpose if they I argue that they weren't ever but you know what I mean like that you yes. don't have to take all this baggage along with you when you're trying to have these profound experiences that enrich your life so it's been an education thank you very much Good. for having me I'm so glad yes it's been lovely I'm so grateful for your time and I'm aware that you need to move on so that is it for this show Helen Lewis thank you so much for joining me where can people find you online you can find my writing at the Atlantic and you can find the new gurus on BBC sounds or wherever you get your podcasts beautiful the music is by 117. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And it is supported by my patrons at patreon.com slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>